Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams. Hi, everyone. This is Amanda Ventura from the University of Cincinnati, and welcome to another edition of Ask a Chair. Today, we are going to be talking to Dr. Arthur Pancioli of the University of Cincinnati. He completed his medical education at the University of Michigan and then came to Cincinnati for residency, where he was chief resident served on residency leadership, and is now the chairman. And this is a very special episode of Ask a Chair for me, because today I'm talking to my very own chair. Hello, sir, and thank you so much for agreeing to do this today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Well, let's get started. So you were known for your role in stroke research. How did you develop an interest in this topic? And can you tell us a little bit about how you have developed such a successful research career? Well, I have to tell you, anytime you are overtly successful, you'd better remember the fact that there's some luck involved. And if you're really successful, then you had the support of others along the way. And I am certainly know well that both of those things occurred. I was a chief resident at a time when we were transitioning between chairs. Our first chair, Dr. Richard Levy, had announced that he was going to step down, and we were in the middle of a chair search when I was chief resident, and I actually had planned to do a pediatric emergency medicine fellowship. Then our second chair, Dr. Brian Gibbler, came to me shortly after becoming chair in early 1995 and asked me if I would stay on faculty. Now, keep in mind, there were only 10 faculty in the department then, and I was asked if I wanted to be number 11. And I said, well, you know, I can't because I've signed a pediatric contract. And it wasn't the classic match at the time. I was I was sort of a cobbled together thing, but it was my intention. And he said, well, I'd make you the assistant program director right out of the blocks. And boy, did I want to do that. And uh, fortunately, the peds director, Dr. Richard Ruddy, basically told me I had to accept that job. Before I was done with my chief year and before I even started on faculty, probably one of my greatest greatest days was the day that Dr. Rashmi Katari, an emergency physician, Dr. Joseph Broderick, a neurologist, and Dr. Tom Brott, a neurologist, and at the time the head of the stroke team, took me out to lunch and offered me the opportunity to be the number four physician on the stroke team. Now, keep in mind, this was the stroke team that were leading the NINDS-TPA trial that was ongoing at the time. So I basically walked into the opportunity to join one of the most aggressive and most out there teams in the country. The concept that every fourth night I was going to be on call for 17 hospitals was lost on me in the initial <laughs> negotiations. I'm sorry that I missed that factor. I might have done something different. But uh, that, that really was those three people trained me without a fellowship because there was no such thing to treat acute ischemic strokes before it was cool and even before the NNDS trial was actually published. So I started in 95 with great mentors, an invested team, and we were at a time when, you know, stroke wasn't cool and there was no treatment. I joined when TPA was still a maybe. When it became a yes, suddenly we had the machine to treat more patients than anybody in the country because we were already set up. You know, every fourth night I was on call, we would run in person to every hospital in the tri-state area, which was 17 hospitals, we treated more TPA stroke patients than anybody, amassed a very significant personal and professional experience in doing so. And when you've truly gained expertise because you've read every article that exists in the, in the field and you've got great clinical experience from having done it, if someone will then teach you how to write a grant, which is a whole other level of mentoring, 
your opportunities are vast. And I was blessed with all of those things. Excellent. What advice do you have for medical students and residents who hope to develop a clinical research career? We've already touched on some of that. Sure. So what is a research career? First of all, I used to think when I was a young researcher that I wouldn't come up with great questions, the good enough research question to really drive a trial or a study or something. And let me tell you, once you dive into an area and you really truly understand what's going on, it's not good questions you're looking for. It's which ones Mm -hmm. and how can you actually affect it? So first of all, you have to go to your area of passion. I had always been interested in the neurological sciences. I was a computer science undergraduate, sort of the concept of how does a computer work, how does the brain work, how do thoughts and actions formulate was always in my interest. So I was lucky that the opportunity that that came across, which was amazing, was right in line with my passion. A great opportunity not in line with your passion is not necessarily a great opportunity. So pay attention to what you're really interested in. Once you find your vector or your at least your quadrant that you're interested in running in, read, 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 read all of the relevant research that's going on right now. Because someday, if you want to be an expert, you have to really know the literature and you have to know it in every direction. So that's next. And then lastly, if you're going to do a clinical research career, you necessarily start with mentors. You have to have mentors in your arena who are willing to invest a great deal of time in you and foster your interest and help you down your path. Prior to becoming chair, you served in residency leadership as the associate program director, like you mentioned. What do you see as the greatest challenge facing medical education? And then on the other hand, what do you find most exciting right now for the future of medical and residency education? Yeah, there are many risks. First of all, the business of medicine, which once you become someone like a chairman where really all you do is sign things like checks, the money matters. And the money that is available for education is one of the easiest things to whittle away from a health system as dollars diminish. And quite frankly, the margins in every element of healthcare are diminishing. And that's really tragic. Back in the day, we made enough money in the clinical side, we could shuttle some of that money over to drive the good things in education. And that's becoming infinitely harder. So I always worry about the funding for education. And we must, as, as academic leadership, must always keep that in mind and work extra hard to ensure that the good funding is there. Endowments are the greatest thing. That's something I've always pushed for is, you know, if you can endow a department or a program or a chair or whatever, then you ensure longitudinal success in education. So that's probably one of the greatest challenges I see. The other thing is, you know, as as residencies, and now that hours are more restricted and opportunity for some procedures is more restricted, people are coming out with some less experience, and we need to worry about that. On the other side, what makes me most excited is the opportunity for augmented education through asynchronous training, the amount of FOMED that's out there, our sim labs, which, you know, it takes a lot of time to run those things, but oh my goodness, right? You can learn so much practicing in those arenas. You go on YouTube, and granted, there's a lot of crap out there, probably not allowed to say that on a podcast, <laughs> but there are some wonderful educational opportunities out there that we never had, right? I literally, when I was a resident, I listened to every single auto digest emergency medicine for the week of whatever. I mean, I listened to every cassette tape from Audio Digest Emergency Medicine that existed. That was the only thing we had outside of reading the books. 
Now you guys have unparalleled opportunity. And let's face it, a really well done video training session is just, just, you can learn so much so fast. Mm -hmm. So that gives me hope. Excellent. Now moving on to your time as chair. Did you always plan on becoming a chair or was this an interest that developed later? As medical students and residents were often focused on successfully completing just that next step of training. What advice do you have regarding how to keep developing your career once you land that first junior faculty role? Yeah, that's a great one because I can't tell you how many junior faculty members or it's just after sort of that junior. You start to get to years four, five, six, seven Mm -hmm. and people come into my office and they say, what's next? Because every point in their life had about a four-year span and then a change. And suddenly, there isn't one. So some key points. One, as I said earlier on, follow your passion. Whatever it is, right? Whatever element of medicine or not, if you follow your passion and you can turn your work into something that is the same as that thing you love, it's not work anymore. I never have trouble getting up in the morning, coming to work, because I love what I do. You know, you say, did I always want to be chair? To be perfectly frank... I didn't know what academics was. Keep in mind, when I started my residency, this program was the oldest program in the world, and it was only 20 years old. Hmm. The amazing institution that I went to medical school, University of Michigan, didn't even have a residency in emergency medicine when I went there. I was, again, infinitely fortunate and had the unbelievable luck of when I did my away rotation, I did it at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan, where my mentor was this unbelievable lady named Judy Tintinelli. Yes, folks are going, how did this guy get so lucky? I don't know. I have no idea. But I've had these amazing people, you know, the Richard Levy's, the Brian Gibblers that, you know, have given me opportunity. It's been incredible. And if you're given opportunity, just do the work, right? But I didn't know what a chair was, let alone what academics was. But I came here and I saw an effervescence and an energy and a drive to make things better. And I just kept going. First, I built the research career. With great mentorship and a little bit of effort, it went very, very well. And then more opportunity came. And I knew a little bit about business from my background at IBM before coming to to the field of medicine. And the chairmanship is a business. I run a $51 million business right now with 300 employees. That's incidentally a department, right? And that works for me. I love business. I love negotiations. I love developing people and careers. And so the chair has been just a lucky logical for me. Since becoming chair, you have held several leadership roles in the upper levels of the health system. What do you feel are the benefits of holding these roles? And what advice do you have for medical students and residents that hope to develop a career in administration? Well, one thing that doctors rarely understand, well, because we never get the training, we're so focused on that which is so critical, our sciences and then our clinical sciences. Most physicians have have no background in business or money. And at the end of the day, a lot of administration is HR and budgets. So you need to know how to deal with human resource issues, hiring, firing, and you need to know how to spend money properly. Because as I've said over and over, the darndest thing is you can only spend a dollar one time. (laughs) And even though we have a lot of them, they're all allocated. So as I said, I I had a career in IBM before as a a computer scientist undergraduate. So before before I came, I had a brief career at IBM before coming to medical school and then beyond. Always loved the numbers, always loved the business. I had a mentor who was a, a high-level executive at Ford Motor Company who taught me more about money than anybody could ever hope for. If you want to be in administration, you better recognize that administration is business. There's clinical ops, that's clinical medicine. But if you're going to run a department or be an administrator, you'd better aspire to understand what a profit and loss sheet looks like, how dollars are spent, 
how to negotiate. And those, quite frankly, the, uh, the MD is about half of it, but either get an MBA or think about studying some of that stuff because doctors and dollars rarely understand each other. Then, once you climb into the ranks of administration, you suddenly end up in the room where decisions are made. And if you haven't seen the musical Hamilton, <laughs> see it. It's amazing. And there's one song in there called In the Room Where It Happens. And I'll be very frank. I'm the chairman of the finance committee for the entire practice plan, 250 million bucks. I'm on the finance committee for the entire UC Health board, which is $1.8 billion. And now I've been elected to the board of directors. If you're in the room where all the decisions are made about all the dollars, guess what? You will be able to affect some of those decisions. And so if you're willing to put in the time, the effort, and the energy to climb to the ranks where you're in the room with the decisions, you actually get to make some of the decisions. As we are wrapping things up, do you have any other advice or pearls that you picked up along the way that you'd like to share with the medical students and residents listening? Absolutely. First of all, a couple things. Medicine is a long career, right? At this point, as a medical student or resident, you're looking forward to the next thing, which is next year or the year after. But there are incredibly high hurdles, but incredibly short goals, right? Step back for a minute and realize you're going to be a doctor 30 years from now, 35 years from now, right? It's a, I've been here at UC for 29 years. It's a long time. So just once in a while, take a break, step back and realize it truly is a marathon. Sprints aren't good for you. Too much lactic acid <laughs> makes you tired. <laughs> Set back a little bit. It's a marathon. Go slow. Two, the most important thing in your entire world are your people. Whoever you love, whoever you're with, whoever's around you, those are your most important assets. Value them above all else. They, like all things in life, are fleeting. So I'll never forget that. And as you go through your career, it really comes about the people in your career are incredibly important. Always, always, always be the best person you can in every arena. You know, treat everyone with respect in your arena and you'll be respected. The day you have a fight with someone, I guarantee you, they're going to be on the committee on the other side of the table four years from now, and that will still be remembered. So be nice. It's a lot easier to be nice than to be mean. And even when you're tired and hungry, be nice. Thank you so much, sir. It was absolutely a pleasure to talk to you today. I'm glad that we were able to do this. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we will talk to you next time. 